So this is a platform about deep philosophical questions and how we can find the answers in music intended for two to four-year-olds. Hey, uh, yeah, see, someone likes that. John, John, yeah, the parent of a two to four-year-old. <laughs> a professional um, hazard that I contend with is that I sometimes think of sort of really big questions, and then, this is the worst part, I feel as though I need to figure out uh, the answer. And, um, and then share it with a group of unsuspecting people, although you wouldn't have been unsuspecting if you read what the platform was about, I guess. <laughs> Luckily, in the ethical culture tradition, it's really an answer that I have to come up with, not the answer, so that lets me off the hook a little bit. But it doesn't keep me from trying for that answer, whatever kind it is. And so recently, I have been thinking about the big question of self. What is self? What does it mean to say we have a self? Do we want to have a self? Do we not want to have a self? Does it matter? And so I'm going to look at that question today from the point of view of covenantal theology, family systems theory, and mysticism. That'd be great. We'll be here for about four and a half hours. Hopefully, by the end of the platform, I will also be able to answer the question, so what? because there's not really any point in asking big philosophical questions or answering them if it doesn't make you live any differently, right? But here's the thing. Just because I think about these big questions, it doesn't mean that I necessarily engage in big reading, capital B, capital R. Because, as I said earlier, um, I'm the parent of a, of a four-year-old and a one-year-old, and so all I actually have time to do is drive around the car, taking them back and forth from childcare, and uh, listen to their music. So the answer first, the, the first thing that I have been thinking about as I think about what is the self is a children's song by Lori Berkner. Does anyone know Lori Berkner? Yeah, yeah, she's very popular in my house. Um, so, so you might know this song. It goes like this. I'm me. And you're you. I like soup. You like stew. There's other things that I like and you like. They're similar but different. So, so it goes on and on. I'm, I'm me, you're you, which seems actually like a pretty standard thing to, to understand and a key developmental milestone for a two to four year old, identifying the self as a thing separate from our parents, you know, who we are in ourselves. In fact, our three- and four-year-olds in Sunday school have a curriculum that really centers around the identification of the self and understanding who they are. Their first week, they talk about having two hands, and then the second week, two feet, and I'm not sure what they're on to now, ears or intestines or something. <laughs> but it's the work of a lifetime, really, not just three- and four-year-olds, to define and understand the self, to know who we are, really. A developmental task in adolescence is to, to sort of identify our group and to begin to define ourself in relationship to that group. That's something that our coming-of-age program deals with. And then as we transition into young adulthood, we begin to identify and define ourself as it's different from our family unit, to see who we are both outside and within that unit. There's a writer that I really like when I think about definition of self, and actually he, he turned those words around and talked about self-definition. 
And that's Ed Friedman, who is a family systems thinker, a rabbi, and who took family systems theory, which is an idea of, um, that, that really has influenced family therapy, sort of looking at the family as a system, uh, and he took it and, and brought it to the congregational level and looked at religious communities as a system too, and as a system made up of lots of families. Well, Ed Friedman talks about the importance of self-definition, the idea of having kind of integrity in oneself, boundaries around oneself, knowing who you are and where you stand, rather than getting kind of all mushed together or enmeshed. The best way that I can explain that problem with enmeshment um, is to talk about my husband and me, who mostly are pretty well self-defined individuals, but I have a little problem with um, when he orders food at restaurants, if he orders something that he doesn't like, I absorb that to become my problem. Does that ever happen to you? And so then I'm obsessed with whether or not he likes his food and should he order something else, and maybe he didn't like it, he should get some, he should feel free to get something, of course he's free to get something else, he's an adult person, he can order anything else he wants to. So that would be a good example of me not being self-differentiated around my husband's mealtime choices. <laughs> kind of specific, but, uh, but it happens in all kinds of places in our life. And so, and so Ed Friedman, this family systems thinker, taught about the importance of self-differentiation, the importance of realizing that, for instance, your spouse is an adult and has control over his or her own meal choices and that you have control over your own meal choices, and you don't need to kind of get mixed up about whether you are you or you are your spouse. So he would like that children's song. I'm me, you're you. I like soup, you like stew. I actually didn't even realize that that's really written for me, specifically. <laughs> Ed Friedman um, has a, a number of books, and, and um, the one that I'm working my way through now is called Failure of Nerve, Leadership in the Age of a Quick, the Quick Fix, and it was written right at the end of his life. And, and he speaks about that idea of self-definition and how important it is. He says, the well-defined self in a leader, what I call self-differentiation, is not only critical to effective leadership, it is precisely the leadership characteristic that is most likely to promote the kind of community that preserves the self of its members, end quote. So, so Friedman's talking about the importance in a community like Wes or any kind of community or in a family system or in a nation that we have an understanding of who we are, that that's the best way we can interact with another person, that we know who we are and where we stand. But then I start to wonder, what happens when we have a little too much self going on? And again, I started thinking about that by looking at two to four-year-olds. Now, I wonder how many people have somewhere in their lives a two- to four-year-old girl? Some, some people. Or you've even seen them. I mean, so actually you all do because there's two- to four-year-old girls in this community, right? So you've seen them wandering around. What color are they usually wearing? Pink. Yes, yeah. Maybe sometimes purple, a little bit of sparkles. And... Um, and how many, what, what would you say is the most common Halloween costume for a two to four year old girl? A princess, so you all got that, right. So I'm right at that moment with my daughter where she has become immersed in Disney's uh, princess mania is really the only way you can describe it. Everything in her world is princesses. And we try very hard to limit the number of princesses that we purchase and bring into our home. But other people buy princesses for her. Princesses just arrive. They, like, read somehow. I don't really know how, but they should look into that because it would be very interesting. 
Um, and in fact, random people that we meet on the street refer to her as a princess. Um, you know, oh, you're just such a beautiful little princess. She's not, actually. She's, she's just a kid. She's a labor. She's no, there's no royalty involved. And I worry, you know, I'm not going to say to the person on the street, please don't call my child a princess. She's really not. But I worry about what happens when every child is told that they're a princess, that they have some sort of royal, Disney-fied crown, desired need to wear a crown, and what happens when all of those children grow up. And we have sort of a world of princesses. Imagine the closet space that we'll need to start building into homes. In some ways, I think, actually, this has already happened. This, this kind of brand of specialness that isn't about your, your unique attributes. It's not about sort of yourself deeply, the, the self that's, that's well-defined, that's clear, but it's about a, sort of an elevated self, as though yourself is actually the most important self in the room, the princess self. But the problem is that everybody's the princess self, and so, you know, that's, that's a lot of self going on. Frederick Muir, who's a Unitarian Universalist minister in Annapolis at the congregation there, gave a, something called the Berry Street Essay at a recent gathering of Unitarian Universalist ministers. And it's a sort of prestigious uh, lecture to the ministers about something in the state of the movement, something in progressive religious tradition that, that we're thinking about. And, and I would say that although he didn't actually talk about princesses in his essay, that's really what was on Reverend Muir's mind. He was talking, this was back in June, talking about what happens in our religious communities when we bring not just an honoring of individuality, that celebration of what makes us unique, but an honoring of individualism. He talked a little bit about Ralph Waldo Emerson, who really celebrated the individual, the individual capacity of each person, and talked about how in American culture and in the progressive religious tradition, we've shifted that celebration of individuality into what I would call a sort of heresy of individualism. That this is an element all through America. And, and, and I like the idea of it being individualism. It's a, it's a kind of ism, right? That sense that we are the most important thing. It's not just that we're unique and special, the way Emerson might have said, but we've taken that in and made it a kind of idol in itself. Fred, Fred Muir said, and I quote, individualism will not serve the greater good, a principle to which we have committed ourselves. There is little to nothing about the ideology and theology of individualism that encourages people to work and live together to create and support institutions that serve common aspirations and beloved principles, end quote. Fred Muir, uh, in researching that essay, looked into um, the naming of Apple devices, you know, the iPad and the iTouch and the iMac. And apparently, there's a, at least one theory, and, and maybe it's correct, that those were created, that, that I is for I, me. You know, it's our personal pad, our personal Mac that we get to interact with technology just the way we want it, totally customizable and perfect for ourselves. Well, Fred Muir says that we are creating a kind of I-church, 
a religious community that we think is perfect just for us, our favorite 20-minute soundbite, but that it keeps us from being able to create a community together. Now, he feels that, that we can also offer an alternative, that a congregation, a religious community can offer an alternative to that sort of I-American culture, that iPad, I-church, I-whole-world American culture. And, and for him, he sees that, now we've talked about family systems, we're getting into covenant theology, remember I said that was one of them. He sees that in the idea of covenant, the idea of agreements that we make with each other that are bound together by our highest aspirations, by who we want to be together. That concept of covenant is important in Unitarian Universalism, particularly in early Unitarian congregations. And it's the idea that our communities are a greater whole, greater than our individual preferences, greater than our individualism, even while they celebrate our individuality. Fred Muir says, and I quote, if individualism led us to the I church, then covenant can shape the beloved community where the promise of individuality and justice inspire, empower, broaden, and deepen us all. He goes on, the Reverend Shirley Strong elaborates on Dr. Martin Luther King's vision. That's where that phrase, beloved community, comes from. And Shirley Strong wrote, I understand the term beloved community to mean an inclusive, interrelated society based on love, compassion, responsibility, shared power, and a respect for all people, places, and things. A society that radically transforms individuals and restructures institutions. Which is to say, Fred Muir goes on, that beloved community is shaped by what we know and feel as justice. So Fred Muir offered, I think, that, that June, as I listened to his words, I thought about the idea of a giving up of self in some ways, right? of looking toward the greater whole, looking past our sense of individualism for a kind of interdependence, a kind of communitarian ethic. And there's an even deeper understanding of that, I think, an even deeper understanding of the possibility of connection. I saw it recently in a Facebook post, you know, one of those kind of pretty images of a dove or a bird or a sunset, I'm not sure. But, but the good thing was the quote, which was taken from Thich Nhat Hanh and adapted slightly. It said, religion is that which awakens us to the illusion of our separateness. Now that idea, that's a core idea in many religious traditions, particularly in, in the mystical side of religious traditions. The idea that when we're connected, the self dissolves. When we reach some kind of higher plane of understanding, we can see the ways in which we are somehow radically one. And lest you think that I'm kind of going off the mystic deep end here, I want to um, give myself a little credence, um, a little backup, to say that West folks thought this too. I actually did a humanist spirituality class last spring, and when we talked about trying to define what spirituality is, one of the things that a number of people talked about was that sense of oneness, that sense of connectedness. You might get it if you're out in nature, you might get it singing with a group of people on a march, but it's that, that moment of kind of transcending the self 
and connecting with other people, feeling as though somehow you're radically the same. And of course, there's a children's song for it as well. This one is from They Might Be Giants, who have a couple of great children's albums. It happens to all of us. We descend into preschool um, uh, land. And there's a great song. It's a number CD, all about numbers. And so their song for the number one is, There's Only One Everything. Yeah, Nora's dancing. There's only one everything. It's about sort of how everything in the world comes together, and there's only one everything. There's an omniverse out there that comes together into a united whole. So, if we try to look past our individualism to get that sort of communitarian ethic, and if we reach mystical oneness, if we have the possibility to reach mystical oneness, I'm left with the question of whether or not the self even really exists. Maybe we're worrying about something that isn't real. Maybe the realness is really our connection to each other, and it's the rest of it that's an illusion. So, of course, I did what any good clergy person would do with this question that I was grappling with. I asked my spiritual director, who comes from a Quaker background but has a lot of Buddhist influences as well. And um, he's very wise-looking. He has a beard, you know. That helps. And um, so we were sitting there with mugs of tea. And I said, you know, I, I'm trying to reconcile. You know, we have to have self-definition and the importance of self and knowing who we are. But then religion, religion is the illusion of the self. And we're all connected with each other. And it's all a mystical one. And he said, oh, <laughs> your problem is that you think there's only one self. Oh, great. Thanks a lot. <laughs> really helpful. So there is sort of a Buddhist concept of multiple selves, of the ego self and the true self that exists more deeply, that we work to shed the ego self so that our true self can be seen fully by our by ourselves, now it gets a little bit goofy, and other selves, I guess. But I decided actually I didn't really have time for that mountaintop. It was kind of far to climb, and it was nice, you know, he gets to just sit around thinking about these things all the time. So we're not actually going to talk about the Buddhist concept of multiple selves. We, we, we don't have time to get into that. That's another platform. So, so I want to go back, as I try to reconcile all of this, back to the idea of a good self, back to, uh, to Ed Friedman and what he said about the importance of the self, and to try to figure out whether it really is in... Um, in intention, in contrast with the idea of communitarianism and interdependence, or whether we might not be able to make those two things fit together. Friedman himself uh, actually gave, you, you know, it gets really goofy. There's a whole page in the Friedman about self, the word self, and oneself, and himself, and selfishness. Anyway, you could go there if you want to. We're not going to go there either. That in Buddhism, no time. However, Friedman said something that I think helps us to get to a place where we can start to reconcile these two ideas. He wrote, again in Failure of Nerve, The universal tension between the forces for individuality and the forces for togetherness must be kept within some balancing range. Now last night as I was working on this, really wrestling with this question, I, um, I guess it was the afternoon, I got a little desperate and so I posted on Facebook... Um, some of you may have been following that string. I, 
I posted on Facebook this problem. You know, I was trying to reconcile the, these two concepts of the self, and I couldn't tell which one was going to win. It's possible I had the wrong idea there. And, um, and so many of my clergy friends started responding and talking about what they, um, what they thought and which one, you know, how you reconciled them. And I want to share one of those quotes with you because I thought it was particularly helpful from Joan Johnson Lewis, who's an ethical culture leader um, at, and a Unitarian Universalist minister also, but who leads the Northern Virginia Ethical Society. So she's been swimming in a lot of these same seas, probably reading a lot of the same things. But, and this is the great thing about having colleagues who have been around a little bit longer than you have, she actually met Ed Friedman and, uh, and knew him, so she was able to tell me what he said about this. And she, she wrote on my Facebook post, Friedman's analogy was cells in the body. Those that have good boundaries, that I'm sorry, those that don't have good boundaries fail, right? They get sort of absorbed by other cells or they disintegrate. Those that aren't connected to any other cells also fail. And she goes on, I remember Ed regularly using the term semi-permeable boundaries. So I think we start to get to this idea, the way that we can see our individuality as important, our sense of self, but also our connection to each other. And really the idea of the well-differentiated self, having good self-differentiation, is always in service of the system. It's not self-theory, after all, it's systems theory. It presumes the pull of togetherness, the, the ideal of community, and it seeks a way to define the self that allows us to be in community better. You can't even really think about the concept of self-differentiation or of self at all without having a community that that self is part of. It doesn't make sense, really, to have a self as totally separate from or individual. I think ethical culture actually has a religious answer to this as well, found in that beautiful concept of the ethical manifold, which is not, right, a part of a car carburetor system or something. The ethical manifold is an idea that the founder of, of ethical culture, Felix Adler, had that, that, that posited or that imagined that each person is an ethical agent, unique particular unto themselves, but that you don't even exist until you're in ethical relationship with other people. So, so you can imagine sort of connected dots. A dot by itself isn't anything, but the dots connected to each other begin to become a sort of network, an interdependence of life. There's a, a wonderful quote as well from Hillel, a rabbi who... Um, who was wise in many ways, and you may know it, I think it gets again to that idea. If I am not for myself, Hillel said, who will be for me? We see there the idea of self-definition. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? But if I am only for myself, what am I? And I return to, to the opening words we started with this morning, and I'll continue them for you. Those were from Kenneth Patton, who is a humanist mystic out of the Unitarian Universalist tradition. We arrive out of many singular rooms, walking over the branching streets. We come to be assured that brothers and sisters surround us to restore their images on our eyes. We enlarge our voices in common speaking and singing. We try again that solitude found in the midst of those who with us seek 
their hidden reckonings. Those words for me get at that balance that we seek, the balance between finding a self, defining who we are, and at the same time having that self be in service of the system, in service of the community. Well, so what, right? Our answers to these questions have to do with how we are with each other, how we want to be. They're about what we value in our religious community, in our families, and even, I would say, in our country. In my own family, I try frequently to remind myself that I am, well, not my husband when we go to a restaurant, and not my child at many other times. <laughs> Divesting myself from over-involvement in her choices, but at the same time, reminding her and myself that we're part of a family system with expectations around how we behave with each other. Insisting on communitarianism and interdependence as how our family is structured. In our country, well, we seem to be in a kind of moment of culture clash. Has anyone else noticed that recently? I think the idea of self-differentiation, the ability to calmly talk about our own positions and values, to identify where we stand, to recognize that someone thinks differently than we, and to talk about them with some uh, semblance of calm and courtesy, it's vital to who we want to be as a country. But at the same time, we as a country need to lo lose that I, that I country, I society, to work instead toward a culture that respects all people and sees our interdependence with each other, sees the way those threads connect us to each other. And in our religious community, to me, self-definition is about being able to articulate our own beliefs, our own feelings and thoughts, not needing to, to all believe or think the same way. To be able to say where we stand and to be self-differentiated enough to hear that someone thinks differently and to not have that be a threat to ourselves. But also, at the same time, to hold in balance that recognition that the decisions we come to together are for the greater whole. That this isn't about I church or I ethical society. That on some level, what we're trying to do is to honor that whole and to notice the moment, perhaps a mystical moment, when our ego self dissolves and we are able to feel connected. We're best able to do that, I think, when we're strong enough in our own selves and then able to have a kind of live and beautiful interplay with other people. That first song that I quoted to you from Lori Berkner has an ending, which I think might sum up uh, where we're going. Some of you know it. You can sing it with me if you'd like, Marty. <laughs> so we've talked all about how we like soup, and you like stew, and I like some glue. Someone likes tape, someone likes glue. I can't remember who. And we get to the very end of that song, and Lori sings to us a little mystical ode. You're you, and I'm me. You like the sand, I love the sea. It doesn't matter, and here's why. 
Cause you can build your castle and I can sail my boat and we'll meet each other in